Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to the book of Acts in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair near you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 91, and you would find yourself at Acts chapter 1. I don't know if you think about this, but do you know that you and I are in the greatest era of technological change in human history? I mean, the technological changes and transitions are happening on a weekly basis. There's a techno revolution that is right before us. We know that part of that has to do with the internet. You know, we now get on the internet through our computers and and tablets and and even our television and and notebooks and and phones. and, and, And we're actually going to be now getting on the internet through glasses that we wear and through a watch that we can buy. We know that GPS has become a, a way of life for us. Uh, we already have self-parking cars. Uh, we're soon going to have self-driving cars. There's just all this technological change that is happening. You know that Google searches now occur at the number of 31 billion every month, billion with a B? You know, there used to be this place called a library, How many people remember that? It used to be you'd go to the library to do research. Now you do Google searches to find all kinds of information. The number of phone text messages daily, every day, now exceeds the population of the world. And by the way, the population of the world is about 7.2 billion people. I read that new information generated this year is more than the information from the previous 5,000 years. You know, it's just amazing, all this technology and this transition and this change that is going on. And when you begin to think about it, it it's both startling and disorienting. And 2,000 years ago, the disciples were going through the greatest era of spiritual change in history. There was a spiritual revolution before them. And in much the same way, all of this change, all of this transition was both startling and disorienting. And we have all of that recorded for us in the fabulous book of Acts. Today we're launching a new series of messages that's going to take us into the book of Acts that we've entitled Seeds, subtitled The Acts of Jesus Through the Church. And the title I've given for today's introductory message is The Great Transition. You know, I believe that the book of Acts is one of the most misunderstood, the most misused, the most misapplied books in the New Testament. And it is very important if we're going to understand our Bibles to understand the place of the book of Acts in biblical history. And when we do that, we will have a good grip on this era of transition that Acts brings. Now, we have a plan for today. We're basically going to look at three things. First of all, we're going to look at some introductory insights into the book of Acts. Then we're going to spend a few moments looking at the indisputable fact of the resurrection of Christ. And then we're just going to introduce ourselves to the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit. We are going to cover a lot of ground. So get ready. Let's move right into it. 
we want to begin by looking at some introductory insights into the book of Acts. And here's the first one, and that is Luke. This guy named Luke is our tour guide. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. It starts off by saying, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Keep your finger here in Acts 1 and turn with me a couple of books to the left in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke and chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1 and verse 1. And Luke writes these things there. He says in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught, of course, regarding Jesus. Well, who is this guy named Theophilus? He's written to in Luke. He's written to here in Acts. We don't really know who he was. We know that his name means lover of God or loved by God. We know that in the Gospel of Luke, he is addressed with this title, Most Excellent Theophilus. It would be similar to parts of our world today. Someone might be addressed, Your Excellency. The same kind of title is used by Paul when he talks about the Roman officials later on in the book of Acts. When he speaks of Felix and he speaks of Festus, he describes them as most excellent Felix or most excellent Festus. We don't really know who the guy was, but in all likelihood, he was some sort of a government official. He's the, re the receiver of the information, but the one who's putting the information together is Luke. Who's Luke? Well, we, we know that Luke is not a Jewish name. It is a Greek name. He was undoubtedly a follower of Jesus who was a Gentile. In fact, we're going to see later on in Acts 1, he talks about the Jews and their language of the day, which was Aramaic, and he's going to translate a word in their language, and he describes it as this is what it means in their language, the language of the Jews, excluding himself from being a Jew. We know that Luke is described by Paul in Colossians chapter 4 as the beloved physician. So Luke is a doctor. He was well-educated in his day, and he traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. And we also know from Paul's last letter of 2 Timothy that Dr. Luke was with him at the very end of, of Paul's life. And we, we know that Luke was a very educated man, obviously very intelligent guy. In fact, it's interesting that in his writings of Luke and the book of Acts, he uses 700 words that are unique to his writings that the rest of the New Testament doesn't even use because he was a guy who really knew what he was doing. He was a meticulous researcher, an interviewer, a chronicler, uh, and, and we, we know from what we read there in Luke chapter 1, he said how he investigated everything carefully. He said, I'm doing all that so you're going to know the exact truth of what happened. It's kind of interesting to me 
that the only gospel that includes the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, from her perspective is the gospel of Luke because Luke interviewed her. The only gospel that includes the story of Elizabeth from her perspective is the gospel of Luke because Luke went and interviewed her. So Luke is the one who is the author of the book of Acts. And what's interesting to me is that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else in terms of the volume of verses. 30% of the New Testament comes from the pen of Luke. And originally, this is interesting to me, Originally, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were one volume in the early church. You remember, they didn't have computers to type things up. Uh, They didn't have tablets to write on. Uh, They didn't even have paper to write out things. They had to write things on scrolls. And oftentimes, a scroll could be as long as 35 feet long. And that's probably what happened when you had the Gospel of Luke and you had the book of Acts that probably went on for 35 feet. And they would then roll all of that up. And later on, when they wanted to read it, they would roll it out. So we could say, since Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke, and he's also the author of the book of Acts, that Acts is really part due, uh, you know, part two in the whole series. Notice again verse 1, he says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on the earth, and he's doing things through his human body. In the book of Acts, especially as we get past chapter number one, he is in heaven, and he's doing things now through his spiritual body. That's why we call it the acts of Jesus through the church. And here's what's really exciting. The chapters are still being written. Eventually, we're going to get to the end of this book, and you're going to see it just sort of ends because the chapters are still being written in your life and in my life. So we're just beginning by looking at some introductory insights into the book of Acts. The second thing we want to look at is that there is a super transition that is going on in the book of Acts. And I really believe this. This, I think, has been true over the years I have observed this. If there's a failure to understand the super transition, that leads to a lot of interpretive missteps and misunderstandings with the book of Acts. What do I mean by super transition? We're going to look at a number of elements. I want to give them to you. Here's part of what's involved in the super transition in the book of Acts. There's a transition between Israel and the church. You remember how in the Old Testament, and it's even true in the Gospels, that Israel is chosen as God's instrument to reach the world. Israel was to be a light to the nations. But as we're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, Israel rejected the Messiah. And we learn from Romans chapter 11, verse 1, and also in verse 25, that God has set Israel aside for a time. But remember what Jesus predicted in Matthew 16, 18? He said, I will in the future build my church. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus births and plants the church. But there's this transition that's going on between Israel and the church. You know, there's a transition between one nation built around the temple and built around the synagogue to many nations and multiple local churches. 
Part of this super transition is a transition that occurs between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era, and we actually have an illustration of that transition right here in chapter number one. Uh, From verses 12 down through verse 26, we have an example of this transition between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. So let's just zoom in for a minute. We'll look at these verses real quickly. Notice it says that in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, and when they entered the city of Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, there was Peter. These are the apostles, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, who was the son of James. And these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers who hadn't believed in him until there was the resurrection. Now, here's what I find very interesting in these verses. It mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, but here's what is fascinating to me. This is the last mention in the New Testament of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We do not see Mary playing a prominent role in the early church. Why is that so important? Well, there are some traditions in Christianity that make Mary a center focus. But what is so interesting is it doesn't really jive with the book of Acts and the Word of God. This is the last time we see Mary mentioned at all. But what's the issue they're getting ready to deal with? Well, remember that there had been 12 disciples, right? And then you have the death of Judas Iscariot. 12 minus 1 leaves us with 11. And yet Jesus had told them, the 12, that you will sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So part of what they have to do now is they have to pick a successor to Judas Iscariot. And the next few verses are going to deal with that. But I do want you to notice this. How many times have you heard somebody say, You know, the Bible is full of contradictions. They're just everywhere, page after page of contradictions. By the way, if anyone ever says that to you, you might just say, well, which contradiction did you have in mind? And a lot of times they don't know anything specific, but we actually have one of the so-called contradictions right here in Acts chapter 1 in verses 18 and 19. Look at those verses. Speaking of Judas, it says in verse 18, now this man acquired a field... With the price of his wickedness, remember when he betrayed Jesus, he got the 30 pieces of silver. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of his body and his intestines gushed out. And it came known to all who were living, verse 19, in Jerusalem. Everyone heard about what happened so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, which being translated means field of blood. And you go, okay, I'm sorry, I'm not catching the so-called Bible contradiction here. Well, here's the way that they like to approach this. They would say this. In Acts chapter 1, it says that Judas bought the field with his betrayal money. But when you go to the gospel of Matthew chapter number 27, that's where it tells us that he didn't want to keep the money He felt remorse. He tried to give it back to the chief priests. They wouldn't take it, and then he just tossed the money back into the temple. 
Now, which one was it really? And then they would go on to say this. In Matthew chapter 27, it says that Judas died by hanging himself. Here in Acts 1, it says he died by falling headlong and his body burst open and everything gushed out of it. I mean, contradiction in the Bible, not really. Uh, there's some explanation for how all this fits together. They're just different pieces of the puzzle. We learn from the Gospel of Matthew that the chief priests, when he wanted to bring back the money and, and, and they wouldn't accept it, and then he threw it back at them, they had a problem. They had something now in their hands called blood money. <laughs> they, they didn't have a problem with executing an innocent man, but now they had a problem because this blood money had been given to them, and they had to make a decision on what they were going to do about it. So what they did is they went and bought this land. But they didn't want their name on the deed, so they put Judas's name on the deed. So in one sense, indeed, Judas bought the land because it was his money that purchased it, and it went into his name. And then how did he die? Well, apparently he did hang himself, and he, tradition tells us that he hanged himself on the edge of a cliff or on a ridge. And we don't know whether it happened immediately, just as he hanged himself and his neck snapped, or whether it happened just in a delay, but apparently the branch that was on this tree that he hanged himself broke, his body tumbled headlong down, and it hit the rocks and all that other yucky stuff happened. It's not a contradiction. You just have to understand how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. But again, while we're in this section, we're trying to track this transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament era. So, Bruce, where are we seeing that? Well, they need to replace Judas Iscariot. And in verses 21 and 22, they talk about the qualifications they're looking for for a replacement. It says there in verse 21, it's necessary that these be men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he's taken up from us, that he ascended, and one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Those are all the qualifications that are laid out. We need someone like that. And so in verse 23, they apparently identify two people who fit the qualifications. There's this guy named Joseph called Barsabbas, who also went by the name Justice, and another guy by the name of Matthias. So now it's down to two people. Which one should we pick? Well, in verse 24, they pray. They say, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two that you have chosen to occupy this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas Iscariot turned aside to go to his own place. And then notice how they determine the Lord's leading, verse 26. They drew lots. For them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and Matthias was added to the eleven apostles. Now, some of you might be saying, well, what, what, do you, "What does this mean they, that they cast lots?" Well, in the Old Testament, one of the ways that someone could discern God's will would be to cast a lot. In the Old Testament, when they determined that this land is to go to this tribe and this land is to go to that tribe, they did it by drawing lots. Uh, the high priest himself wore a garment, and it had two colored rocks in it called the Urim and the Thummim, 
And when he wanted to determine what the will of God might be for a particular event, at times he would draw one of the rocks out. This would signify we should do this, and this rock would signify we would do that, and they were together, and whatever one he drew, that would be God's will. Um, We don't know exactly how they did it. Maybe they had two rocks, a black one and a white one. You know, the black one, if it's the black one, it's going to be Barsabbas. If it's the white one, it's going to be Matthias. Uh, You know, it's the the similar idea to just flipping a coin like we would do today, heads or tails. You know, heads, it's Barsabbas. Tails, it's Matthias. Which one we pray, and then we just flip the coin. And so some people come along and say, well, you know, that's what we need to be doing. That's what we ought to do when it comes to determining the will of God. You know, should I take this job or shall I take that job? Or should we move here or should we move there? Or should I date this person or shall I date that person? Well, what we need to do is just flip a a coin, you know. If it's heads, it's that one. If it's tails, it's the other. But we're involved in this transitional period. This is, by the way, the last mentioning in the New Testament of drawing lots. And drawing lots is never commanded anywhere in the New Testament of those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So we don't look at the book of Acts and say, well, if it happened in the book of Acts, we must all do it. No, this is a book of transition that is going on, super transition. It's a transition between the Jews and the Gentiles. The church, as it starts off, we're going to see this, was all Jewish for two years, Nothing but the Jews are part of the church. It is all Jewish geographically. It is racially limited for two years. Eventually, though, it transitions into the Gentiles. There's a super transition in the book in the area of leadership. We start off with the apostles. It's the apostles, the apostles, and eventually it becomes the elders and becomes missionaries and it becomes evangelists. It's a book of transition. There's a super transition in the focus of faith. You remember how in the Old Testament, the focus of faith was on God's promises? You believe God's promise, and he reckons it as righteousness in your life. It's what happened to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. God said, hey, I want you to believe this. Here's the promise. Your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. And it says there that Abraham believed God, and God reckoned that him as righteousness. In the Gospels, the focus of faith is on Jesus being the Messiah. You want to have God reckon righteousness into your life? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 8 and verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, the Messiah, you will die in your sins. But in the book of Acts and on into the rest of the New Testament, right up to this very day, the focus of faith is on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what a person must believe in and place their faith in, the fact that Jesus died for me and rose again from the dead. So we have this super transition going on. Part of that transition involves the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament and even in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit was with them, But from the book of Acts chapter 2 and on, the Holy Spirit is in them. In the Old Testament, the presence of the Spirit of God was select. Not every believer had the Holy Spirit with them. And it was temporary. It could be taken away. That's why King David said, Lord, don't take your spirit away from me. But from the book of Acts on, the presence of the Holy Spirit is universal and it is permanent. 
Remember how Jesus told the disciples back in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit abides with you, but he will be in you, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit who will be with you forever. So there's this super transition going on. It's always helped me to look at the book of Acts and the, the epistles of the New Testament in this way. The book of Acts is really descriptive history of the birth and the growth of the church. The epistles are prescriptive instruction for living the Christian life. All of this helps us to understand how the book of Acts fits with the rest of the New Testament. Now, as I said, we're working our way through some introductory insights. The first thing we noted was that Luke is our tour guide. The second thing we've spent a little bit of time looking at is the super transition involved. The third thing I want to do, final thing with introductory insights, is to simply quickly look at an overview of, overview of the book of Acts. And we have a chart here, and this is going to be available on the city uh, today and also on our website, so you don't have to write all these things down. But basically, the book of Acts divides around the principles that we find in verse 8 of chapter 1. Um, and we're going to see it themed out this way. In chapters 1 to 7, we have the church planted. In chapters 8 to 12, we have the church scattered. And then in chapters 13 to 28, we have the church growing. And the locale in the first seven chapters is in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 to 12, it's in Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 to 28, it goes to the ends of the earth. The people focus in the first section is the Jews. The people focus in the second section is the Samaritans plus some others. And the people focus in the last section of the book is on the Gentiles. The key leader in chapters 1 to 7, Peter. In chapters 8 to 12, Peter and Philip. And then in chapters 13 to 28, Paul. And what's interesting is, in a timeline, the first seven chapters cover two years. The next chapters, 8 to 12, cover 13 years. And the last chapters cover 14 years. So there you have it. That's a lot of data, a lot of information. We've given ourselves some introductory insights, but let's move on to the second thing we want to look at, and that is the indisputable fact of the resurrection of Christ. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. He presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. This was no hallucination. This was someone who was resurrected from the dead. In fact, when he talks about presenting himself alive by many convincing proofs, he uses three verbal phrases to describe what that looked like. Notice the first one is there in verse 3, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. The verb here is the verb from which we get our word in English, ophthalmology. They, they literally eyeballed him for 40 days. And in fact, at one point, 500 people at once eyeballed him. 
There's no hallucination here. This wasn't a hallucination they were having. This was a real resurrection. The second phrase is the phrase there in verse 3, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He was instructing them and teaching them about the kingdom of God and everything involved with the kingdom of God. And so it's not an hallucination they were having. It's reality. And then the third verbal form that describes his presenting himself alive by many convincing proofs is in the phrase that we see in the next verse, verse 4, gathering them together. Uh, Some of the translation says, eating with him. This word really means to gather people together to eat. He was consuming food with them. That's not something a hallucination does. He was presenting himself alive to them. What really makes Christianity unique? That we have morality built into it? There's things you should do or you shouldn't do? The reason why Christianity is unique is because our founder came back from the dead. That's what makes Christianity unique. And the resurrection is the foundational pillar of our faith. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14? He says, without the resurrection, men and women, our preaching is useless. I mean, what are we doing here? Let's get out of here. Let's go for a pretty drive. Let's go visit the lake. What are we doing here? Without the resurrection, our preaching is useless and our faith is worthless. That's a pretty strong statement to make. Death is the greatest enemy, and yet Jesus holds the keys to death. Let your eyes drift over to to verse 9 in Acts 1. After saying these things, Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going up, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus, right before their eyes, steps into the next dimension, the dimension we can't see, smell, or touch. It's the spiritual dimension. And Jesus' body leaves the earth because he has plans to form a new spiritual body. Again, in the Gospels, he ministers to people through his physical body In the book of Acts and following, he ministers through the bodies of men and women like you and me who are indwelt with his life. And so he goes up to the right hand of the Father where he represents us. But as they say, we believe these two guys were angels, they say he's coming back. He took one step into the spiritual dimension and he's always one step away from coming back. In, in, in James 5, 9, it says this, the judge is standing at the door. It's just like there's a door, and Jesus just walked through the door and shut it. And all he has to do is open it again, he steps right back into our world, and he's going to do that very thing in the future. Absolutely, he's going to do that. Third final thing we want to look at, we're just going to begin to get into it this morning, and we'll, we'll get into it more fully um, beginning next week, is the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard about this for me, guys. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus had told the disciples in Luke 24, 49, I am going to be sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. John baptized, verse 5, with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, I find a very interesting interchange that occurs in verses 6 and 7 in this section. Remember what they say to Jesus? They're asking him, are you going to establish your earthly kingdom in Israel now? Are you going to do that now, Lord? I mean, they're a little bit like kids when you're on the vacation trip, you know, and you take the kids out, and they're in the car, and they're going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, Jesus had been teaching them about this, and they said, is this the time now that you're going to establish an earthly kingdom? And it's interesting to me what Jesus does not say to them. There are some very good people who believe that there is no future earthly kingdom ahead for Israel. They say there is no future kingdom anymore that's going to be on the earth with Israel. But if there was no future kingdom coming, Jesus could have clarified it for all time. He could have said, hey, guys, I'm sorry you missed the point here, even though I've been teaching you about the kingdom for multiple days now. No, 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 there really is not going to be any future kingdom at all. No, no, that's not what he says. They're asking, is it now? Is it going to happen right now? And he says, it's not a matter whether it's going to happen. It's not happening now. The when is going to be in the hands of the heavenly Father, but there's still a future earthly kingdom coming for Israel. And in Romans 11, uh, verses 25 to 27, it talks about that. Now, it's not an earthly kingdom right now, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit is going to equip you, men and women. The Holy Spirit's going to give you courage and confidence and insight and ability. And, and I want you to be my witnesses. But what does it mean to be a witness? If someone ever asked you that, what would you reply? Well, it's actually defined for us in the book of Acts in chapter 4 and verse 20. When Peter says, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They were called to be witnesses. We are called to be modern witnesses ourselves. And we are a witness when we share the story of how God has worked in our life. Whether we're living in Puebla, Mexico, or whether we're living in Norman, Oklahoma, or anywhere else in the world. We are a witness when we share our story, when we brag about his mercy and his grace. We say to someone else, I want to just tell you about the mercy of God and how it worked in my life. I want to tell you about his grace in my life. And they were to do that in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth, and we're to do the same thing. We're to share the story of how God has worked in our life. We're to brag on his mercy and grace. We're to do it in our neighborhood. We're to do it in our city. We're to do it in our state. We're to do it in our country. We're to do it 
to the ends of the world. And that's one of the things, excitingly, that Wildwood's involved in doing. You know, Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't mean you can't mow the yard. He meant when it comes to accomplishing something for the kingdom of God, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, without the Holy Spirit, these disciples were wimpy witnesses, and so are we. But with the Holy Spirit, we can be enabled witnesses who can be bold and clear in talking about Jesus Christ. And we're going to see more next time about all of that. Now, we've covered a lot of information, so what I want you to do is take a deep breath with me. Right, Let's just take a deep breath. All right. How can we respond to what we've looked at today? I'm going to suggest two life responses we can have. They're built around two verbs. One is share and one is praise. Here's what we can do based on everything we've looked at. Number one, we can share our story with at least one person this next week. To share our story with one person this next week. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to to share with one person about how God has worked in your life? Just tell the story. Tell how he's worked in your life. Just brag to someone about the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Just do that with at least one person this week. Say, I've just got to tell you about the mercy of God and how it's worked in my life. Share your story with one person this week. And then the second thing we can do by way of some life response is to praise him. To praise him for his death and his resurrection and to praise him today for his mercy and grace in a fresh way. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up because we're going to do that very thing. Just to respond to everything we've seen by giving him praise. To say from our heart to the heart of God in a fresh way, God, you are my hope. Jesus is my hope. And it's on your grace that I stand. We can just say again with the saints, of the past even, that worthy is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Aren't you glad that that is true? Let's just pray together and then we'll, we'll sing some praise to him. Father, we just thank you again for this book. We want to understand it. We want to understand the story. We want to understand our history. We want to understand how you have been at work in planting seeds to change the world. And today we just want to thank you in a fresh way for your death and your resurrection on our behalf. We want to just say again, some words of praise that worthy is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We're so grateful for Jesus, and we count it a privilege now to honor him with our song, and we pray these things in his name.